0: You're listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California. And our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, that they encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. And on this episode, we are diving headfirst into Corinth. And I have to be 100% honest with you. When I started to think about this episode, it felt a little like, oh, yeah, it makes sense to do. We're going to be in Corinthians for the rest of the quarter. It'd probably be good to do an overview. It's just going to be boring. And I say that so that you know that when I say something's awesome, it's not because I think everything's awesome. I thought this was going to be a snooze fest. But then I asked Christian Wingate to do it with me, and that guy can make anything an interesting topic. So we opened our Bibles, and we read about Corinth, and we started thinking about what Paul had to say to this church, the sweeping vision that he has for their life, and what can I tell you? It was no longer boring. It has just a little bit of everything, a bit of a history lesson, some maritime economics, lots of talk about mail, and then just a classic, robust discussion of what Paul's vision is for the Corinthians and how the gospel of Jesus ought to matter to them in real time, and then what we do with that. It's very on brand. So I want you to think of this episode like the introduction to a travel book. If you're traveling somewhere, you might pick up a Rick Steves travel guide, and you'll either jump right to the sections that interest you, or you'll read the introduction, which will give you the lay of the land and put everything else into context. And that's what we want to do. We'll be trying to show what Corinthians is all about before we start diving into particular spots throughout this quarter. We'll be doing our best Rick Steves impression, except no fanny pack. And so after this episode, we'll start hearing from our student speakers who have been hard at work learning how to read texts, interpret texts, organize a talk, and eventually give a talk, and they'll be the ones taking us deeper into Corinthians throughout the quarter. And I can't wait for you to hear from them. But before we get started, I want to remind you that we're going to be doing another Ode to the Question Mark episode later this quarter. And so I want to invite you, whoever you are, if you listen to this podcast, to ask us any kind of question you might want to. And maybe we'll be able to talk about it on the podcast. So just go to collegelifedavis.com slash questions to get it to us. And that's it. As always, enjoy the podcast. Hey Christian, um I uh I have something to tell you. You know that I am not always the best at uh returning texts and stuff. I'm sure you you know that, right?
1: It, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you
0: you've been the victim of a of of a long delay before. Well, I I'm also not good at necessarily apparently relaying texts that I've gotten to the subject at, to which they were about. Does that make any sense? So last time you were on the podcast, which was the the Revelation one, Rick Morris, Ph.D., who is a faithful listener to the podcast, told me to say, tell Christian I've really enjoyed his appearances on the podcast. Oh, that's kind of Rick. I love Rick. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And so by the transit of property of equality, I'm pretty sure because Rick has a Ph.D., which is about smart things, and he thinks you
1: are smart on the podcast— I think that means that you have a Ph.D. as well. And, I mean, if you're relaying the message, then you are capable of relaying a Ph.D.'s message. (laughs) Therefore, you also have a Ph.D. Peter, we all have Ph.D.'s. Either that or I am an institution. I'm the an institute. doles out
0: PhD. Yeah. But uh, it's good to have you back, man. It's fun to talk about theological things with you. And, you know, when we started planning this particular episode, uh, we're, we're talking about Corinthians. And I kind of thought, okay, this might be a little sort of like boring, you know, like we're just like going into the background of a book. But then just when you and I chat about... Anything it seems like in this world, it just it it very quickly not only gets interesting to me, but also feels like, man, this is like the most important thing to be thinking about right now, today. So I hope that we can uh, translate a little bit of that to
1: our faithful, faithful listeners. That's my entire life, by the way. Is I get really excited about thinking about something, and. <laughs> I have to then convince everybody in the world that what I am thinking about is the most interesting and important thing you could possibly be thinking about. That's right. That's great. It's a good strategy to have. Probably
0: makes you very interesting to talk to. Depends on the subject. Yeah, that's true. Depends on the subject. Yeah, yeah. But but what did I what did I say when I was doing your wedding? There was my favorite line. Oh my gosh! I have to remember it. I have to. Oh oh oh. Well, I had this whole fruit motif, right? Because because uh, <laughs> for a couple reasons. One was Wait, you did something with fruit. There was
1: some fruit in your story. On one of Olivia and I's first dates, I didn't really realize we were on a date, and so I laid out this entire life oh, fruit right. ranking hi- hierarchy. That's right. That's and that's it on took up a pretty substantial amount of our walk. Right. And by the end of it, she was like, "All right, he thinks deeply about fruit." <laughs> She's like, "Either he
0: is strange and just has deep passion or he's filibustering because he doesn't actually want to be on this date and (laughs) doesn't want to talk to me. Okay. So I had this whole fruit thing, you know, Olivia is a uh, daughter of a farmer, you know? And so, and you had this whole fruit story. So I had this fruit motif going on in your wedding. This is, this is all unplanned material right now, by the way. Um, And, and I remember that one, I said that one of your great traits is that you make, you have watermelon sized passion for grape sized topics, right? That's what I said. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's going to the Hall of Fame of my my sentences. Anyway, okay, so we're talking about Corinthians because the preaching class for College Life has been hard at work for the last quarter, and they're taking over the spring quarter teaching. We're actually already, at this point, two people in. Tegan has spoken. Julia has spoken. They've been great talks and uh, more to come. But what we wanted to do was open up Corinthians and give a little bit of some context, a little bit of background, and— just some overarching thoughts about some of the themes, sort of like what we did with the epistle series in Fall Quarter. So, what we did then, we you know we we picked an epistle and we talked a little bit about its background and, and all that stuff and some of the themes. Remember, I themed a theme. We can go back mm-hmm. to Les Misérables. So, Sometimes. anyway, so you have you wanted to double down on some of the things we said prior, just to hey, let's refresh our minds about what these epistles are. You seem very
1: passionate about it, so I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you take it. So we're talking about mail again. yeah. And Peter, you know what I was thinking about this? New mail is not interesting. People New are mail? only interested in old mail. Like really old mail. If I was to talk about my own mail for an hour on the podcast, it would be a <laughs> negative one out of 10 on the interesting scale. <laughs> That's true. And if I talked about last month's mail or last year's mail, that would be even worse. Like imagine an hour long podcast about my expired Safeway coupons from last April. Well, what
0: about, what about like the mail? Cause like mail has gotten quaint, right? And so it's like, if you were to receive a letter from like Charlie, you'd be like, this is like, this made
1: my day, right? It, it would, it would. But even then, would, would 70 people want to listen to me talk about that letter for an hour? No. Probably not. But there's no. this point where mail starts to get so old that it starts being interesting again. Yeah. It becomes so interesting that you would give an hour of your life to hearing Peter and I talk about the history of that mail for an hour. That's true. And you're like, yeah, this is great. This That's is true. what I want to do with my morning. You know what's funny, <laughs> too? Like, I remember
0: when we were doing the— book club on C.S. Lewis at FVC. And I was amazed, at, one, at how much mail he wrote, and two, mm. how much his mail informed the biography. This Wow, what I'm saying right now sounds so dull. But it was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I was amazed. like Like, he, like, worked out his theological thinking in his mail, like, in his correspondence. Like, his mail was, like, good. Like, his mail was worthy of being published. Like, if I were to write you a letter, it's not gonna be published anywhere. Not because we're not famous,
1: but just because it's like, I'm not writing anything Groundbreaking, and you yeah. know what? One of the one of the most interesting things about Narnia actually comes from a letter that he wrote to a boy. I actually have not read this letter, so this is hearsay. But my understanding is that in this letter, this boy explains what Narnia is, and he says it's not supposed to be an allegory for the right. Christian worldview. It's meant to be a thought experiment of what it would look like if they were basically multiple universes, and God was the same throughout all of them, but interacted with them differently.
0: Yeah. See, a letter. He wrote that in a letter. He just decided
1: to to pen
0: that. So anyway, yes, that's true. I think I agree with you that old mail is more interesting than new mail, which kind of makes sense, though, because new mail is ubiquitous and old mail is not. Hmm. So that was the point you wanted to make was that old mail is more interesting.
1: Yeah. Something about age and also the content of old male is just better. So the male
0: thing, a reason we're bringing it up again, we hit this hard when we were in the epistles series and we're going to hit it hard again. One, just to remind us what these things are, because we are, I, I think we are so deeply, deeply trained to approach any single biblical text as a theological treatise or as like, hey, what am I supposed to do right now? You know, like, just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. I'll go obey Tell me what I should think and tell me what I should believe. And then that's it. It's all, it's the same for all time. But even though what Paul's going to be doing in Corinthians is he's going to be talking about different theological topics, like he did not sit down and say, these are like the five or six most important theological topics for all time. What he was doing was he was corresponding with the Corinthian church. And we're going to get into the weeds because I know you guys want to hear about the the order of the correspondence, when the letters happened, (laughs) all that stuff. You guys, you woke up today just begging someone to talk about this stuff. And we are here for you. But we are hearing one side of a pretty lengthy conversation. And as you'll see when we go through the, the order of the correspondence. But it would be like if you cut out Christian's audio for this podcast and you just heard me and then you had to piece together what was Christian saying and thinking. What is Christian like as a human being? based
1: on what Peter is saying. And not only that, but you also missed the first 10 minutes of Peter's audio and then the last, and then like the middle 10 minutes of Peter's audio. <laughs> and so you right. only have like a 10 minute chunk kind of in the early beginning and then like 20 minutes at the end. Right. Now you're trying to figure out what has happened right, here. Right, right, right. So the epistles as
0: mail is important for sort of two reasons. One, to to note that it's sort of an interpretive challenge to know why exactly is Paul writing what he's writing. You have to sort of piece it together, like you're hearing one side of a conversation trying to think about what the other side of the conversation was all about. But two, it helps us contextualize, like, this was something that Paul was writing to the people of Corinth. Not that it's not true for us, not that it doesn't have bearing in our lives uh, or for our lives, but he wasn't writing timeless theological truths. He was writing embodied theological truths. And and what was going to be helpful for that Corinthian church to faithfully live out the story of Jesus, which is why some of the epistles sound different, which is why some of the epistles have different themes and emphases, because maybe different communities needed to hear how to live into the story of Jesus faithfully in a different way. And so have we beat this idea
1: enough yet to you? Christian. We have. And I think okay. as a justification for beating this idea to death is... 1 Corinthians is a, a huge challenge to understand because the letters are so disjointed, because we have so little, we have a fourth of the correspondence that happened between them. But 1 Corinthians is to the early church what Romans is to us today. Romans became really, really popular with Luther in, in the Reformation. But prior to that, 1 Corinthians was really the big book and the, like the major theological treaty for the early church. And so that's why we're digging into this. This was really important to the to the first thinkers in the Christian movement. And so it matters to us, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Was it
0: 1 Corinthians only? That was the the early church? It was primarily
1: 1 Corinthians. I think 2 Corinthians also kind of got lumped in there, but I think it was primarily 1 Corinthians.
0: That's so interesting. Gosh, it's hard to think that way.
1: I mean, you and I both, when we started this, we are like, oh, I haven't been in 1 Corinthians in a while. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, too, it's like it does make sense— yeah in some way because 1 Corinthians is going to deal with five major issues that are plaguing this church and those are just not issues that we deal with on the day to day in our our modern world but these were critical critical issues for this early church these were the big questions they were asking and so hey here's your you know your handbook from the apostle paul on how to deal with this stuff yeah pretty useful that's important stuff that's so interesting okay we'll talk about this maybe when we get there but i feel like those the
0: five things that he talked about are like well maybe not all of them but i'm surprised at how modern they feel Hmm. um but i guess you're right looking at them they're not all we're not always asking about how to deal with our food that's not something we wake up a ton thinking about is how to deal with our food faithfully anyway so let's talk about corinth okay little uh, little corinth context promised that this, we're going to try our best and not have this be boring, but it's helpful to get context of what the, what is the city like and what's the city all about? So here it is. Okay. So Corinth was a, a super wealthy city. It owned two harbors. I don't really totally
1: understand that, but they just had two harbors. They were on an isthmus. Okay. It'd be, it'd be great to live on an isthmus. So, so they were on a, they were on a six mile stretch yeah. in between, like basically on a peninsula. And kind of like Panama, they were basically the Panama Canal of the ancient world, except they didn't have a canal. They tried to build a canal. It didn't work. They built one in the 1900s. But they're super rich because they sit on this six mile stretch that is critical to trade. And they're right between Asia and Europe. So like
0: to get to Europe or to Asia, you sort of have to just go through, like there's so much crossing of, of those two to get to either continent, you know? And so I have a question for you that I could just Google. I'm sure I could Google. And I'm sure I could actually give you a plausible answer to it. But this is the kind of thing that I just like I, I think about and then I, I don't ask until until I ask. When I just said that they're super wealthy because they had two ports and two harbors or whatever, people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, that's that's how that's how ancient cities got wealthy is being near stuff. And like I've seen it. Like when we went to Europe, like every single major city had like a waterway for trade. You know, it just makes sense. But I don't <laughs> I feel I feel like I don't totally get it. And I'll tell you why. Cause I feel like the people who are going to trade are not going to trade with the city. They right, they're going to trade with like other people. Like like they're they're on their way somewhere. So they, it feels like this is just like a stopover. So are they counting on like like they stop, they get off their boats, they stop and they go flood the economy with like I'm going to go to the bodega stand and <laughs> and get a falafel or something like that. Like, like, what's what? why does it matter <laughs> that people are crossing through?
1: Obviously, it'd be better than if they weren't crossing through. Peter, have you ever played Catan? <laughs> if you've got I'm the, the sheep port, you're going to win. <laughs> if you have the nobody wants sheep. And if you become the baron of sheep and you control the sheep trade, then, uh-huh. then you are the gatekeeper. But I think that's what I mean. It's like, they, it doesn't seem to me like they're
0: controlling any in d- industry they're just like a a place people go through
1: yeah i think the infrastructure surrounding trade makes a lot of money so for my job for whatever reason i had to learn about the panama canal the other day because of the suez canal is holding up a bunch of our freight and uh, as a whole a whole deal so you guys were affected by this by the suez blockage uh, to some degree in indirectly dude that's tight t- yeah, tell, your, tell your kids that global trade man yeah. global trade but I learned that the it it can cost a ship upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to traverse through the Panama Canal, which is an ah. enormous amount of money. And so, so then there's there's you have to pay money to like stay here or stop here or go in through some here. capacity or another. Yeah, I'm sure there's like a bridge toll. Yeah, there's probably you know there's going to be. Some form of the city taking a cut of whatever trade is going through it, whether it's in taxes or docking fees or even just the sailors offloading and, and staying in, you know, I'll call them hotels for the night. Um. <laughs> it, don't you feel like it? This is okay. This
0: is working way off here, uh, <laughs> but it feels like uh, I always feel like it'd, it'd be really easy to just steal in the ancient world because there's no like, there's no, what's the security other than like, mean people with that, that the jurisprudence is probably not kind to people who steal and stuff, you know, but there's no like credit card trail or there's no like scanner to like scan your boat numbers to make sure you've paid. It's like, couldn't you just like
1: go through, you know, oh,
0: like to give money. You'd have to like hand someone coins or something.
1: Yeah, I mean up until Just don't do up it. until the invention of, of DNA analysis, if you were <laughs> robbing a bank,
0: what as long as about? you weren't still there
1: by the time the cops got there, you had a 99% chance of getting away with it. <laughs> oh, anyway. Anyway. Um, I've led us I've led us to a dark place. Um,
0: but so you're telling me that they it makes sense that because they they had trade and the infrastructure of trade, they were a wealthy City. Also, I imagine for something, uh, another part of the sort of Corinthian identity, they were actually a, a Greek city. And I, I found out that they sort of hosted the minor leagues of the Olympics. Oh. It was like the there was the Olympic Games and there was the Corinthian Games. And like one of the highest offices in Corinth was like the director of the games. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? That's cool. Yeah. I don't know what it, if it matters for our conversation, but it's interesting. But anyway, so it was a Greek city that get, then got like wiped. By, um, I don't remember which emperor, but it was the Romans. Romans came in and, and took them out. And then what was interesting about that is that like, to repopulate the city, like once Rome took it over, they actually let, like, there it, it was like this mass rush from who, who were called the freedmen. So, like, slaves who are now free, who, so people with no sort of status really in life, they were sort of at the bottom of the the rung. And so they all flock to Corinth. It's like the gold rush, you know, to, to like make a new life for themselves to have like higher station in life. And so I, I feel like that detail has just been on my mind. I'm like, that must mean something, you know, it's like, if that's the, the, the identity of a lot of the people in your place, it just must, must mean something. And and maybe it'll, it'll come up back up again, but it's anyway, it's sort of an interesting detail, but you, so you have this, like this, It was Greek and then it was Roman. So you have this, like, You know, you hear the term Greco-Roman all the time. This was like Greco-Roman to the nth degree. You know, it had very strong Greek influences, very strong Roman influences, kind of hybrided together and syncretized. And I think that combined with a lot of people coming to trade all the time you just had a lot of different cultures, a lot of different philosophies interacting. And you make this place sort of one that, it's a sort of a melting pot of ideas, but it's it's highly religious. There's lots of temples. There's lots of gods to be worshipped. Tons and tons and tons. So it's just part of normal life for Corinthians to to sort of worship that god a little bit over there, worship that god a little bit over there. If you want something, yeah, you gotta go to that temple. Um, so it's a super
1: religious city. And you've also got these traveling philosophers that are coming through the city. They're They're these... Greco-Roman type philosophers who are getting paid to speak because they're super brilliant and they're really persuasive and people like listening to them because they feel smarter and better about themselves after. And it's this whole status thing to like hire a philosopher to come speak for your dinner party and then the the philosopher's stoked because he gets you know the status of being the speaker at this dinner party or whatever. And you Mm -hmm. get the status of having hired this famous philosopher to come speak. Not unlike the modern day, honestly. And... These guys are actually going to end up tearing the church apart a little bit in Corinth because they're going to start challenging Paul's authority. and That's going to cause him a lot of heartache. We'll get into that a little bit more. But there's a lot of status-mongering and, and mm-hmm. kind of power-hungry, like, speakers running around. And it's this really yeah. weird dynamic. And it's both really, really weird and really different, but also... If you look at it through just with a little bit of a, 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 you know, modern pair of glasses on, you're like, oh, that's actually exactly what's happening today.
0: Yeah. Dude, totally. Because, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's unlike, you know, somewhere like Manhattan or New York. It's like if you are somebody who is prominent, you know, and you and you come to America to speak, like you're going to go to New York before you're going to go to Topeka. You know, like <laughs> I don't – it's just like you're you're going to – you're gonna pass through these really important spots. And if things start to get that reputation, then it happens more and more. And and then if you live in New York, then you're you get to be somebody who hears a lot of interesting things or sees a lot of interesting things, you know? And that probably is happening in Corinth, right? If they have all these sort of popular, traveling, super talented speakers, wonderful orators, you know, especially in like the Greek. I think people talk about like the Greeks were the were the head and the Romans were the 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 brawn, you know, of the ancient world, like the, the Greeks had the ideas, you know, and the, the Romans built stuff. But so if you have all these people with, you know, wonderful gifts and oration and philosophy coming in, like that's going to infuse your culture. You know, you're just going to, you're going to value that, you know, you're going to love that. You're probably going to have um, a little bit of a heightened sort of collective intellect would be my guess if that's sort of going on in your town and in your city which is interesting cuz just like you said we're we're going to talk about this like but like Paul is self-aware that like he's not one of these people yeah you know absolutely you know and maybe we should talk about so how Corinthians enters the sort of the Christian story or the story of God's people is that Paul goes there on a missionary journey and what's interesting he does his i don't do you remember which missionary journey it was oh no i don't even want to okay. guess it's okay the amount of times i have learned Forgotten and relearned the missionary journeys. Yeah, is too many to count. Yeah, but Paul goes to Corinth and he does the normal things. So there must have been Jewish people there. In Acts eighteen, it talks about this. He goes to the synagogues and they are just kind of having none of him. And then he's sort of like, okay, fine. If you want none of me, then I'm just gonna go to the Gentiles. And which is sort of he was obviously envisioned himself the sort of the apostle to the Gentiles. So it's not an unlikely move from him, but it, I think it really sets up sort of the rest of Corinthians because really what Paul is going to be doing from here on out is, or in Corinthians, uh, something you can see him doing is he's sort of resocializing the Corinthian the Corinthian Christians um, to be like, yeah, I know that you have this this culture and all these values and all these norms, but guess what? Like now that you are a Jesus follower, it's time to sort of have your mind
1: and your your worldview shaped by this God and this new story. And one fun fact about Paul's time in in Corinth and in Acts eighteen, so he he runs into this uh, this crowd who wants to throw him on trial, and uh, he get, he goes under the the proconsul of the area. His name's Gallio, and Gallio is really interesting because up till this point, we have no idea where Paul was for the last like fifteen years. Basically, between his conversion and this mm-hmm. moment, we have just about no idea where Paul was we have no dates anything written by him or by others that would indicate what he was doing and what was going on but gallio was only proconsul for about a year and a half two years and we have an inscription uh, that we found in in this area some super brilliant archaeologists founded, I'm sure, that dates Gallio to AD 51. of that's when he was the proconsul. And so if Paul is running into him as the proconsul, this is the first fixed date we have for Paul's life after his conversion. And mm-hmm. it's going to set up, this is going to be the date that all of his missionary journeys get dated by. And basically the rest of his life, we can be pretty certain this is kind of the, the starting moment of when we know things are starting to happen. So If you're interested in biblical chronology, this is super important. If, like most people, you're not, we can move on. Back to mail. (laughs) It it really – yeah, back to mail. This is (laughs) thrilling. Um, It is interesting to think, like, if that
0: just didn't happen, if someone didn't just find that, like, we would still be in the dark with so much stuff. You know, like, once once it's happened, it feels like it was sort of inevitable. Like, oh, yeah, we had to find that because we needed to date it. But Mm -hmm. what if we didn't? Like, what if, like, that just wasn't there? That would be crazy. But – It also said that he stayed there for like a year and a half teaching and proclaiming the gospel boldly, you know, he's like, he's talking in, he's, he's in the mix with all these, you know, powerful speakers, powerful thinkers, this super wealthy city, super religious city. Corinth gets the reputation in the ancient world of being hyper, hyper sexualized. And I'm sure that's related to the fact that a lot of the temples, like the worship was like sex worship, right? And it seems like I was prepared to talk about the sexual story of Corinth, but just doing a little bit of research, it seems like, it doesn't seem like it was that different from any other port city. You know, people are coming in, enjoying themselves for a little bit, and then they head on home, you know, a um, little vacation spot, uh, and they do nefarious things on their vacation. So yes, the it was a hypersexualized culture, but in the same way that uh, a port city was then and might still be sort of today, and in a way that, like, a, a city that has all these different temples where maybe sex worship is part of the... Part of the gig um, is going to be that way. But it does make sense because Paul is going to ha- have to talk about their sexual
1: ethics and how they sort of come in line with with their new king. So anyway. Yeah. And so Paul leaves Corinth after a year and a half. So he stayed there for quite some time. He's been with his church. He knows them well. And he leaves and he goes on to Ephesus. He goes on to Syria. And at some point while Paul is on Ephesus, he gets a report from Titus about the Corinthian church and how they're doing. And it's really bad. They have just been in really, really bad shape. And so Paul sends a letter. And uh, believe it or not, we actually don't have this letter. We have no idea what it says. Other than that, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, he says, I wrote to you in my letter, previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I'm writing to you now, blah, 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 blah. He's talking about some other stuff. So there is a letter that Paul wrote to this church after this report that is kind of the precursor to 1 Corinthians. So the Corinthian church probably responds with another letter. It's possible that he also just wrote First Corinthians to kind of further flesh out his his first letter. But First Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul has written the church. Okay, okay. Yeah. So this okay. is this is why so. the mail thing is so significant. And so Paul is now dealing with these various issues with the church. He's asking a bunch. He's answering a bunch of questions that the Corinthian church has responded with, and. Paul decides he needs to go visit the church uh, because it's in disarray. It's a wreck. And so he sails probably just across from Ephesus to, to Corinth. And uh, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, basically, this was a really painful visit for him. It was a really difficult visit. We don't know why. Why? but we get the impression that he left just really offended and really hurt like they didn't trust him anymore like they didn't love him anymore that this church that he had just been with for so long these these letters are only ha- are happening in AD 53 he founded this church in 5051 so it hasn't been that long but it seems like the church has just totally forgotten who he was gosh that would be so
0: frustrating you're there like you're there for a year and a half you're like pouring your heart out you're seeing change you're you're probably aware of the challenges you know of like this is going to be i mean i for some reason i keep i don't know if this has been done in the past you know but i keep thinking about like what would it look like to be like a missionary to vegas you know and uh i mean just uh, it sounds terrible you know I, and i don't know if that's the right analog to um to corinth but just i don't know a city that is maybe not known for its yahweh worship, you know, and then to feel like maybe you've, you've like created a few little communities, you know, it's like, and I, from what the numbers are, they, they weren't massive Jesus communities. I mean, they're like a couple house churches of 30 or more people, you know, there wasn't like hundreds and hundreds, it wasn't a massive explosion of the, of the Christian way, but it's like, okay, I got this sort of foothold of people who, who want to love Jesus and are going to live for him in the midst of this community. And, and then you leave for a bit and they just sort of get overwhelmed by the prevailing culture, it would feel so inevitable. It would feel so frustrating. It feels so hopeless. So anyway, I'm feeling Paul's pain right now.
1: Yeah. And so he decides he's going to write a third letter, and this is nicknamed the letter of tears. So in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. And people think this is a third letter that he's written after his painful visit, uh, mostly because that description really doesn't match 1 Corinthians very well. First First Corinthians has some discipline and has some correction, but it's really not affliction and anguish of heart and many tears type content. And so most people think there's a third letter that's happening here. And then he writes second Corinthians. And this this letter of tears, uh, it, it causes the Corinthians to repent, not 100%, but they're on much better terms with Paul than they were when he was on his trip with them. But they're still kind of questioning his authority. And so second Corinthians is partially a reconciliation letter between the two of them. And it's also partially Paul defending his apostolic authority to the church, who has kind of been listening to these, these rhetoricians, these philosophers who have been disparaging Paul and saying, you know, he's not really worthy of teaching them. Uh, it's also a really disjointed letter. It's got a bunch of really weird breaks and pauses and interruptions. You're talking 2 Corinthians? Yeah, yeah, 2 Corinthians. Yeah. And and so it's, it's uh, there's a few different hypotheses why it is that way, but it's possible that it was written over a really long period of time, and uh, Mm -hmm. Paul kind of stopped and started and stopped and started. So that's why we're talking about mail today, because we have the second and the fourth letter of one half of a four-letter correspondence, including a trip that we were not present for. And if that feels impossible, that's why people get PhDs in this stuff. Like, this is why people spend (laughs) their entire lives studying it and why we need people that do that. because it is possible to piece this stuff together based on the internal clues i mean paul is pretty clear hey i wrote a bunch of letters that you don't have you know we can we can definitely get an idea of what happened and and what the topics were but mm-hmm. this is hard stuff
0: well and also shows like he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what those letters mm-hmm. were about you know he expects the corinthians to know what they're mm-hmm. about because He wrote them to them, you know, but he was not thinking, oh, okay, like, in a couple thousand years, people are going to be reading this. I better fill them in on what I said to the Corinthians. You know, I think it's an interesting question for Paul. Like, did he know he was writing scriptures? You know, that's not a question we're going to talk about right now, but he's definitely knowingly writing mail, you know, he's definitely just corresponding to these people. Um, And it's just so interesting, like, the only reason we would think that there was another letter... Uh, that, that preceded the first Corinthians is that he says, like, I wrote to you in my letter, past tense, you know? And I'm sure it was just like, oh, that must mean there's another letter, you know? And it's just that small little clue. And it's just like, this is how biblical interpretation is done. This is how piecing together what's happening in the epistles is done. And it's really exciting. But obviously, you can see it's like it's like a puzzle. It's like a we're like all ancient or we, we are all having to become experts on reading ancient mail which is another reason why reading the scriptures is so hard which is another reason why we want to do things like this to hopefully make it just a teensy bit easier for
1: us i remember i had a conversation with dan sites when i was a freshman because i had a question i was like you know i would learned about about the the nature of his correspondence and i got coffee with dan and i was like dan if we had one of these other letters from corinthians would we put it in our bibles today if we discovered it and we could know with certainty that that was it would we put it in our in our scriptures? And it it's just an interesting thought experiment on what you what did he say? I think we agreed on on no because the criteria was that it would have had to have been universally used by by the early church that pretty much everybody had to have access to it and yeah unless we could make that case and and clearly they didn't have access to it because it didn't make it into our canon so if it wasn't universal right. then it wasn't uh, it, it would not have been canonized but. Don't you think it is crazy though to think
0: like, okay, so they found the Dead Sea Scrolls like how long ago? You know? Like yeah. not that long, Like another discovery could come. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And like, what if they did find another one of these letters? Like, just what would happen? That would be such an interesting. It'd be on the front
1: cover of Time magazine. It would. And I think it also <laughs> It does bring the question to the front of your mind of what really is canonization? What does it mean that we have a a codified book of letters that are somehow more significant than stuff that is not in those, in that book. And if we did have this extra Corinthian letter, what would we do with it? Even if we didn't put it in scripture, how would we treat it? And you'd probably be like, well, maybe it's not scripture, but like, it's still Paul. That should count for something, right? right?" And yeah, so, you know, it it really, again, we're we're getting ahead of ourselves, but um, it does make us think differently about what this material is. Yeah. So that's why we dove into the the correspondence. One is kind of interesting. So we
0: have 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians is the argument, right? Mm-hmm. So if you remember from our conversations about the, the previous epistles, we would sort of move from context, and then we would always want to talk about some themes. And just to get some—it's always helpful, always, always, always helpful to me to, like— pre it's almost like you you know the movie before you know you've Wikipedia the movie before you go see the movie so it's like oh now I can pick up little things you know some people do that some people don't Katie likes to know the ending of things very strange but it's sort of like that it's like this stuff can be hard to read so it's sometimes it's super helpful to have a it's like oh, okay I know that like this is sort of about this theme and I'll see how it plays out throughout the rest. So that's what we kind of want to do where we're gonna go back to the category I theme to theme and we're gonna just talk about one theme pretty much that breaks down into others, right? maybe I'll just introduce it, and then you can sort of take it from you can sort of s- start to see how it how it plays out in particularly first Corinthians, but also first and second corinthians so first Corinthians is super first corinthians in particular, I think is super interesting in that what Paul is doing is he's sort of entering into all these different areas that it seems like the Corinthians are either struggling in or they have questions about, and it seems like his thesis or his main theme is like. You are a Christian now, like that's that's what he wants to say is like, yeah, yeah, I get that you used to do it this way or everyone else is doing it this way, but you are a Christian now, and so that means you need to live and give Jesus your obedience, which means some of the stuff in your life needs to change and or at the very least needs to sort of come under the the kingship of Jesus, and so that's sort of the the main thing is you need to start looking at your life through the lens of the gospel. And that's what he seems to do over and over and over again. He will introduce an issue, and he'll show how the gospel, uh, the story of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, and and people being brought in, getting to have new life in him, living for him in his kingdom, is going to change and alter and sort of mess with their preconceived norms and the ways they're used to doing things. And so we've sort of identified five different ways, right, that, that, that he— Five different topics that he kind of goes into to kind of say, hey, yeah, in regards to this, remember,
1: you're a Christian now,
0: so you're going to have to change how you're doing things.
1: So what's one of them? We'll hit the first one hard, and then we'll kind of move quickly through the the other four. Mm-hmm. But the first one is these deep divisions, this factionism that's coming up in the Corinthian church. So right. uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is saying, hey, I've, I've heard that there's some quarreling among you. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he's like guys, we're all on the same team. We are all on Team Jesus. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter which teacher you're sitting under. We're all in the same body, in the same church, in the body of Christ. And so this factionism is outrageous. You need to be unified. And his thesis statement of this letter is is in in, uh, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. Mm. And that's the message of this letter. Among uh, above and beyond everything else he's going to talk about, what he wants in this church is unity. And there are these other speakers that are going to come in what he calls the super apostles in 2 Corinthians and these are which I think is a little sarcastic. It is right? it is sarcastic, yes. Yeah. Uh yeah. these oh these these The super apostles, yeah, coming in, yeah, yeah, Uh and uh, we have really no idea who these people are. One plausible suggestion is that they're Jewish Christians who have been trained in Greek rhetoric and they're coming through, and they're kind of the traveling philosophers of the day, but the Christianized version of them. They would be Mm -hmm. almost the equivalent of like your traveling preachers, like or your mega church pastors, but like that kind of move around Mm -hmm. and speak at different places, maybe and not to disparage you know large church pastors but these guys are getting paid but in that
0: they're gifted yes they're very gifted they're, gifted. they're yeah.
1: very gifted yeah. they're very popular people know their name they want to hear them speak and they're getting paid for what they do and so these these guys are coming around and they're speaking at these churches and they're getting paid for it and they're really persuasive and the church is like looking at Paul and they're like yo hey, hey, Paul you're not very good at this like we can we can Get yeah. a way better speaker for, like, a few bucks. Uh, right. Are you sure you're a real apostle? Yeah. And, you know, it'd be like if, not not to say Tim Keller is a bad guy, Tim Keller is a great guy, but, like, if Tim Keller came and spoke at, you know, some some random church in, you know, a tiny little town, and then the, the church was like, hey, normal pastor, uh, get on his level. <laughs> You'd
0: be more like that, please. Yeah. yeah. Can yeah. you be more like him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we would laugh. We would rather he be our pastor. I feel like this definitely hits. I feel like maybe if you do get your paycheck for being a Christian, this kind of thing hits a little hits hard. I think a little bit. Okay, while you were talking, two a couple ideas came to my mind. One, I feel like sometimes when like if I were to talk about church unity, I always feel this way. Sometimes, like uh, how how's that for a sentence? I always feel this way sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> You're an English major. Sometimes right? I always feel this way. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if I were to talk about church unity or if I were to talk about you know, inviting your friends to church or evangelizing in some way, it always feels a little self-serving. Yeah. You know. And it feels like, hey, this is my job and sort of my I'm in, I'm in charge of running this organization and I'd like for it to be good, please. And so would you please stop arguing or would you please be united? It doesn't feel tied to something deeply, profoundly true about what we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, sometimes if, it's, if it feels self-serving, you know? But like, I, so I love that Paul, it's just, it's a burning passion for his. It feels like the absolute logical overflow of being involved with Jesus is that you cannot live this factioned, like distorted, like you hate each other, you're arguing all the time, you're quarreling, and we talked about this in other epistles. Like he talks about this all the time, but he's just like, this just cannot exist in the Jesus community. It cannot. It exists everywhere else. I get that, but you cannot. You're a Christian now. You can't be this way. And so that feels inspiring to me. The other, the thing that feels interesting to me about this is if it's true that these super apostles or these the people that that they're saying hey paul you're not so good like these people are like they sound awesome when they speak and like you're like not that good looking and like they might be pretty good looking and so like they are awesome and you're really not that good it's so, like we are kind of kind of lean towards these people who are pretty awesome so if that's true and if part of the reason that's true is because they these like traveling speakers sort of speak the language of the culture you know what i mean like like they they have a christian message but they're able to mm-hmm. do it in a in a Greco-Roman way, in a way that sounds like wisdom to people. That just feels like, uh, in terms of modern church thinking, that feels like that's excellent church planting. Yeah. Yeah, it does. You know? It's like you should be speaking this story in a way that everyone's gonna hear and be like, oh yeah, you you got something. You know, like you want people to think you're impressive. You want people who, you know, again, if you're Tim Keller and, in, and you're in New York. You want people who are used to going to lectures of really smart people or used to going to art shows of really impressive art to come to your church and be like, this fits. This fits in New York City, you know? Yeah. And so I'm not prepared to say, oh, everything we've thought about this is wrong. But like Paul seems to be like, hey, yeah, I might not be as talented. I might not be as gifted. I might not be as eloquent, but I'm talking about Jesus Christ and that's enough.
1: And I think the big distinction here is these traveling speakers are they're status mongers they are pretty fundamentally prideful they are making their money Mm -hmm. on their their fame and their fortune do we know that or are we reading that into like well it must like
0: like i just said like to to contextualize your speech so that people can hear it well is a good thing so if these people are bad then they must have been bad versions
1: yeah i'm uh, I don't know that with certainty based on the history of it, but I do know that is Paul's criticism of them, which is these guys are just yeah, out yeah, yeah. for their for themselves. they're not out for they're not out for Jesus that is true. That's they're true. out for themselves, yeah and that would be That's the major true. distinction between someone like Tim Keller and someone like one of these people, whereas Tim Keller is pretty genuinely out for Jesus, but these guys are primarily out for their own status, their own following for for themselves. Yeah, so at that point, it's not like, "Hey, eloquence is wrong or bad, and people who are eloquent you ought to be
0: afraid of." But it's people who are eloquent and also selfish and greedy, and
1: you know, have not had their minds transformed by the. <laughs> that's right, but these people are compelling. They're still compelling, and and that's yeah. what's causing so many divisions. And so, uh, another thing is that these these traveling speakers would come with letters of recommendation from other powerful people who would recommend, you know, and so someone would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk. Yeah, about yeah, This, yeah, this yeah. is good. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is good. No, no, i I know where you're going. And so yeah. someone, you know, they, they'd flash their letter of recommendation from this powerful higher up and, you know, some other city would be like, oh, man, we should hire this guy. He's, he's a real deal. And mm-hmm. then they ask Paul for his letter of recommendation. They're like, Hey, what, uh, wh- where's yours? You know, you never showed us a letter of recommendation. Are you really the real deal? Should we yeah. even, you know, should we trust you at all? And Paul is livid. Paul is like, (laughs) you realize I founded your church, right? You realize I built everything you know from the ground up. My letter of recommendation (laughs) is the Holy Spirit in your bodies. Is that not enough for you?
0: (laughs) You know what image came to my mind? This might be complicated, but I was thinking like, gosh, it sounds so frustrating and so ridiculous. I wonder, like, say Mason's like 15 and gets some like love letter from someone, you know, and it's all this like flowery language of how much, you know, just like young adolescent love, you know? And then he turns to Katie or me and is like, show me that you love me. You haven't given me a love letter like this, you know? And it's like <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I seem to remember changing diaper after diaper after diaper. I seem to remember loving you even though you kept us up at night. I seem to remember like taking you from little <laughs> tiny little infant child into this person. Like I seem to remember that, you know, my our love looked pretty I don't know. I don't you know what I mean like it's like I seem to remember our love being actions to you and obviously, you know, all these things. And now you're saying, oh, because I haven't, there's not this piece of paper declaring my pretty, you know, easy to say
1: love. And I don't I that I don't love you. There's okay, let's let's check ourselves. And you know? so the other thing, you know, they're asking for this letter of recommendation. Paul responds with that. The other thing they're asking for is, okay, well, what gives you the credibility of being an apostle? Like why why do you get to say you're an apostle? Right. And and you know, why are these guys not apostles? And Paul is gonna say, I may not have the most eloquent speaking style and I may not be the most charismatic, but I have the scars on my back to show you that I'm an apostle. Mm -hmm. Like I have the scars on my back to show you that I have suffered like Jesus suffered and that what you are mistaking as eloquence is someone who is portraying themselves as a leader for the the sake of themselves. And what Mm -hmm. I am trying to tell you and what the gospel needs to change in your thinking is that leaders are servants. We are modeled after Jesus. My leadership is in my service to you in the church, and I have the scars on my back to show it. That's so interesting. I feel like
0: if I were to look at my life and think, okay, Paul is like pretty upfront dude, and he's also, now he's saying he's not that eloquent of a speaker. You know, it's like, it makes me nervous that like if I was around, i just was like, wouldn't be that compelled by it. like i i would want to listen to one of the eloquent ones yeah. you know i would just i'm just bent that way you know it's like it would just be more interesting and and it's i i love i think this is the this particular portion one of the, the particular issue that he's dealing with where he's saying hey you're a christian now so this this thing needs to be transformed in you it's sort of like it makes a lot of sense that you would be someone drawn to eloquent speech because you live in a place where this is just happening all the time. It's part of your culture. And it's how you value people, it's how you value ideas. And it's it's just what feels like second nature. You don't wake up saying, Today I'm going to follow the eloquent speaker. It's just what everyone in the community just does naturally. And that's why eloquent speakers yeah. come. You know, it's like it's just parts to start starts to be part of the fabric of living here. And he's just like, that
1: needs to change in you. You know what's challenging about it too is you know it's it's not just eloquent speaking because it's it's eloquent ideas eloquent speaking is mm-hmm. pretty easy to kind of write off and and say oh yeah, you right. know that's really superficial we can we can like somebody who's not an eloquent speaker but when it comes down to the marketplace of ideas of course you're mm-hmm. going to agree with some people and not with others i mean mm-hmm. we have the same factionism today in in very similar ways you could, you know, they might be saying, I follow Apollos. I I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. We say, I follow N.T. Wright. I follow John Piper. I follow Tim Keller. Right. And. Right. Man, what a challenge to us today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's a good point. I don't have much to say (laughs) right now because I feel. Convicted.
1: Convicted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um,
0: Because it's, and it makes but because it, it makes sense because it's like well I'm trying to sift through the biblical yep. data and you know and then you find someone and you read someone and you hear someone that's like this makes sense like they're putting the, the, the data together in a way that feels true that feels compelling that feels honoring to the text and you know beautiful to me and and then there's going to be people who disagree with those people and it's just like it feels efficient yeah. <laughs> to then say, yeah, I probably disagree with that yeah. one, the one that disagrees with this guy too. And so it's like I'm probably just going to not read what that what the disagreer has to say. I'm probably just
1: – And I know? think that's what makes – It just feels efficient. That, that's what you know? makes 1 Corinthians <laughs> such a challenging letter is we tend to write them off as being – in 2 Corinthians, as being superficial. Yeah. As not really yeah. caring about Paul and the relationship that he has with the church and really just going for the, you know, yeah. the prettier, smarter, better speaking people. But I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is actually way more challenging. I think it is people disagreeing in the marketplace of ideas and doing exactly what we're talking about. And that's a way harder problem to solve. And Paul is still calling for unity in the midst of that and saying, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard to know.
0: It does seem like in the midst of it, though, he's saying like, like my message to you is like Christ crucified, yes. you know. And if like if this if this didn't happen, and if it, or if Christ cru- like Christ crucified is my message to you, that's my eloquence, that's my yeah. status, like the message that I'm saying. It has nothing to do with me. Then it does seem on some level he's wanting to distinguish between people who have this like different message and. Me who has this the Christ crucified message because I guess in the in the example that we were talking about of like the different Christian speakers I think that they all would want to say my message to you is Christ crucified That's right. and when I say that what I mean is like the message is like the gospel it's like telling the good story, the good news of of Jesus which obviously it's would be useful to define the gospel in a podcast sometime you know but yeah I don't know I guess I guess what you're saying is challenging to me because I I do think. That I tend to read this as like, oh yeah, these people are saying just really easy things to hear, you know, just like be happy, go ahead and just yeah, you can ha- you can have this God, and then also like yeah, if you want to keep worshiping that other one, go go for it. If it makes if it makes you feel good, if you want to keep having sex this way, if it makes you feel all right, then you know God loves you. And that's funny because I don't know where I get that idea, but that's just my picture of the super apostle kind of teacher.
1: Yeah, I think we can move on. So uh, you, let me tell you something, oh, yeah, yeah. Christian. You don't decide when <laughs> you move on, okay?
0: <laughs> you, you don't have the power to move through the Google Doc like
1: I do, okay? Um, but uh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Let's I just happen to agree with you at this time and place. <laughs> right, right, right. It, I, this is my decision, so, not yours, um, but I, it just so happens that you said it first.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just just so you know, I'm deciding to move on, Okay. Do you want to take us to the next one? Do you want yeah.
1: Me to... Well, uh, this, the next one's quick. So this is sexual misconduct. Uh, the Corinthian church has someone sleeping with his stepmom. It's uh, not great for like a lot of yeah. reasons. Community, integrity yeah. being one of them. Do you wish that that was, you know, if you could
0: rewrite the Bible, do you wish that that was a more like not extraordinary case? Yeah. Like sometimes it's like because it's so extraordinary. It's like this is like almost everyone can see like this is nasty, you know. It feels a little bit like, yeah, we'll this, write it this off. This is an easy like, one. The really, really extreme sexual situations are the ones that Paul is against, you know, here, as opposed to maybe some more
1: mundane sexual situations. Okay, okay. That, here, here's here's yeah. the thing, though. This is going to get us exactly into the question of: Is this a theological treaty that's supposed to give us like? all of the things that we kind of want to hear, or is right. this Paul dealing this with an actual specific situation that is happening? <laughs> sure. I would yeah. like to have Paul talk about, you know, sex on other, in other circumstances. And he, like he does in other letters, but you know, we do, we can want things, yeah. but that actually takes it. When we start wanting him to say something else, we're removing ourselves from the fact that this is actually a real situation that he was dealing with. That was well said, my friend, that was well said. And the
0: logical outflowing of that was like, okay, so this is what was happening there, and this is how he responded, and so in our time, what's happening in our time, you know, it's like we're doing the same. Th- we would be doing the same thing. Like, how do you respond faithfully, or even prophetically to whatever is happening today? So I think that was well said. You 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 poked at my impulse to try and want it to say something that I
1: have questions about when really it has questions that it is answering and we need to see those. That's good. It, and that, that's that. a, that's a an impulse that we all have. And it's really helpful to kind of remember that when you're reading and you mm-hmm. do have impulses of like, gosh, I just wish this was clearer or I wish Paul, yeah. you know, explained this more or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just remembering, oh, this is actually a real letter to real people. This is not meant to be Jesus following 101, you know? This yeah. is not meant to be an, all, yeah. an, an exhaustive course. Right. And so this, the, to deal with the sexual misconduct, I mean, he does talk about,
0: and Julia just talked about this. She touched on it. But like this whole your body is a temple. Don't defile it <laughs> essentially too, you know, uh, which is not, I should have, it's not exactly what he's saying. But on some level, it's like your body, your body is something magnificent. And you need to now, you're used to treating it a certain way. And now with this new lens of being a Christian, your body's a different thing. Than maybe you thought it was before, and now you kind of need to think about it in through that lens and treat it in that like through that lens, and not, you know,
1: how you. And actually, one of the the body metaphor actually does carry a dual meaning in Mm -hmm. in First Corinthians for Paul because he does talk about our bodies being individually temples, but the body metaphor more broadly is used as the body of Christ of which we are members or individual pieces of it that make up the body of Christ. And so when he says that our body is a temple, he means that both individually but also corporately. And so mm-hmm. that's a really unique dimension to this body metaphor that happens is as a community, we are a body. And as a community, our our community body is also a temple. And, yeah. you know, we can, we well, we, we could draw on that more, but Julie already, already dug into that quite a bit. So, um, I think we probably move on to food. Yeah, let's move on to food. So, you've probably heard this talked about quite a bit. Uh, this is the notion that you know meat gets sacrificed in temples and to other gods, and Christians when they want to eat meat, that's that's really because meat is so rare and so valuable. Uh, if you're going to eat meat, it has almost certainly been sacrificed in a pagan temple to somebody, uh, or if you're in mm-hmm. Jerusalem, maybe it got sacrificed in in Yahweh's temple. Yeah. So Christians are like, okay, so like can we eat meat or do we need to be vegetarians because we can't eat meat sacrificed in these other temples? And Paul is, you know, just real quickly, Paul is going to say, this is a matter of conscience. We know that these, these so-called gods are not legitimate beings. Although I do want to add an asterisk to that. And I think Paul would too, in that he's going to say, but there is, there is, dark evil behind this. Even if you want to say that that piece of wood itself is not a God. Yeah, sure. That's true. But there's also some legitimate spiritual evil dwelling behind it. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to say, if no one's around, go ahead and eat the meat. Like if if it's not going to weigh on your conscience, Mm -hmm. go ahead. It's fine. But if people are around and they're going to misunderstand what's happening because they don't understand your Christian freedom to do this, whether it be another Christian or it be an outsider, don't do it. Just don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. Is it really worth eating the meat to cause someone else a, a huge amount of confusion or uncertainty or or cause you to lose integrity in their eyes over what you're doing? It's like, just don't do it. And I mean, I think that goes for yeah. about a million things today. I think in the West, we have this really crazy idea that our rights are like the most important thing and that our freedoms are just the most important thing and no one should ever tread on our freedoms. Mm -hmm. And Paul is saying, look, just love other people and if that means setting down one of your freedoms to love them well, just do it. Who cares? It's not that big a deal. Just be kind to people. Love others. Put others before yourself. You have freedom, but there are going to be many circumstances in which you should just not use it. The calculus for
0: Paul is a little bit different than it seems like we are sometimes trained to think it's like, yeah, you have the right to do that, but for the good of the body, no brainer, you know, Yeah, like no brainer, just like, don't do it. You know, I wonder if alcohol when you're 21, is that all a helpful analogy to the modern day? You know, cause it's like, you have total freedom, like, like absolute freedom by the law and by, with Jesus Christ to drink, <laughs> drink alcohol, you know, when you're 21, there's a way of like, you could be drinking alcohol responsibly. That looks to someone like yeah. you're not. Someone who might have different thoughts about alcohol. I, I remember when I was growing up, um, I just had a lot of fear about alcohol, you know? And um, and it really bothered me when I would see Christian leaders drinking. And, and it's just, there was an attitude about it, you know? And um, and the attitude just to, I guess now that I've opened the can of worms, I'll just say the, the attitude, like when Christians turn 21, it always seemed to me like, they're like, oh, okay, now we get to catch up to the rest of the world. The rest of the world... The rest of the country, whatever, had it right the whole time. Now, like, we had to, like, kind of abide by the law, and now we could just be like everyone else, you know? And that was just, like, the narrative I had in my head. And I do think on some level, if someone were to be following this, which sounds weird because it sounds sort of selfish to say, but it's like, it would not have been kind to drink around me. Not that, like, maybe I, I had some room to grow in how I thought about alcohol, but it would not have been, if you knew that about me, Yeah, you know? And knew sort of the the turmoil it would, it would put me in. Um, it maybe wouldn't have been super helpful for the body to do it. Yeah, you know. And I don't think people are excited to hear things like that a lot of the time. So it's I think that's really it's a it's an issue of love. Like I, like what would it look like in that moment yeah. to love me? You know, it might mean like, hey, we're drinking Pepsi tonight. You know, not that we aren't allowed to drink alcohol, but like I just know Peter. I know that he's he's just not like he. Again, maybe it could also still be he has some room to grow. Like he's too legalistic in this in this particular area. But for right now where he's at, I'm going to I'm going to love him and and <laughs> I don't know, drink some O'Douls or something. But that's really I don't know. I think that's that's really that's good stuff. Okay, so so far, so far we've talked—the the, the three have been so far, hey, you're a Christian now, which means the way that you've been doing division and, like, you're arguing and you, like, prefer these speakers because they're heck of eloquent, like, you just got to redo that. That's not what it's about. It's about the message, about Jesus crucified. And we've talked about, yeah, you're used to living in this sort of sexually free way. Like, you can do anything you want um, all the time, anytime, doesn't matter. You know, actually, no, 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 no. Your body— your body is a temple, and also our collective body is a temple. And the sexual story that you're inhabiting now is is a different one, you know. And we gotta you have to live into that, and then and and then this food thing that we just talked about. So just to recap of where we've been so far, um, the food thing you have freedom to eat these foods. They are not evil in the way that you have thought before, but like some people might be struggling with it, and so with in what you're doing, have love for the
1: community. You know, put others before yourself. So all right. okay, what's uh, next? Quickly, Sorry. we got worship gatherings. Basically a bunch of people speaking in yep. tongues, got crazy prophecy happening, all kinds of weird stuff. And Paul is gonna say, look, these gifts are great and they have value, but they don't have value if it leads the worship gatherings into chaos. So orderly worship in this case, just set it's gonna be the exact same messages with food, is just set aside the things that you have the freedom to do, or you think might be good, for the sake of everybody else, just love other people. Mm-hmm. Build the community yeah. by setting down your own freedoms, your own rights in these specific circumstances, when setting them down means loving the other person better. And so that—that's what's happening. Yeah, that we'll, we'll just kind of move move through that one, uh, just because it doesn't feel as applicable as, as today. Uh, his last major issue is the resurrection. He's some people are saying the resurrection was in, insignificant and not important to the Christian faith. And this is where you get that classic line from Paul where he's he's like if Christ didn't rise from the dead, this was all worthless and we are the most of all people to be pitied for basically how stupid we are yeah. and how much we've thrown our lives away mm-hmm. for something that's nonsense. And you get, mm-hmm. you know, the reference to the 500 witnesses and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, uh for Paul, yeah. you know, this is this is the the most outrageous thing that the Corinthians could possibly say. Above and beyond even the divisions and everything else, he's just like, really, guys? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I taught you for a year and a half. Yeah. Gosh,
0: this is the bedrock of it all, and you just you yeah just, like getting wishy-washy with this bat. You know this this thing that's that like, can't have that.
1: You know. And it shows how much the situation in Corinth has deteriorated and is going to continue deteriorating Yeah, and and why he makes this trip out there, why he writes this third letter, why he writes this fourth letter, why he's in such constant contact with him because the church is in bad shape. You know what's interesting? Like there's, so, okay,
0: I'm going (laughs) to, I've taken us on too (laughs) many rabbit trails. Believe me, you, you wanted this to be faster. And I just, I just kept wanting to talk to you about stuff, but I'll just say this to cut the story short. One of my friends said something really smart or seemed pretty smart to me. And now that I'm telling it to other people, I hope that I was wise and I was smart. But anyway, he was. We were talking about like politics and the church and stuff, and he was like, "What's interesting is it seems like people on the right sometimes it's like uh, the the in the church might want people just like I just want you to like believe the right things, and sort of how you live doesn't always necessarily matter as much. You know, you can sort of sort of live how you want to live, but as long as you believe the stuff that makes you a Christian, then we're good. You know, and then maybe people the Christians on the left have maybe a little bit more of a tendency to say, you can sort of believe whatever you want as long as you do the ethics that yeah, we think are the right really ethics. If you have the, the 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 justice that we want you to have, all that stuff. And so it's interesting because on one hand, the Paul's like, hey, you need to believe the resurrection. On one hand, it seems like it fits into the conservative side. Like, you just need to, like, have the right thoughts. You need to make sure that you're believing orthodox things. But it feels to me, actually, like, it's a combination of the two. It's like, like, you don't understand how transformative the idea of the resurrection is. And not just because it's a cool idea and marks you as a person of this different tribe, but it's gonna infuse absolutely everything about the way you live. You know, the fact that there is this king who has risen, the fact that, like, now you belong to him. Like, this all of what I'm saying in this rest of this letter would just not be useful. Would not be. You should not do it if the resurrection didn't happen. It changes everything. It changes your theology, but it definitely changes your ethics. You know, it's like this, this the middle of the Venn diagram. Is the resurrection. Um, and so it's not just, hey, like, I, I've heard that, like, you've started, like, doubting if the resurrection happened, and you you, you really shouldn't doubt the, the really important ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, my gosh, the resurrection is so huge, not just as an idea, but as a way to
1: change the entire yeah. way that
0: you live, you know? So you can imagine, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is the crux of it.
1: So anyway, that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's the distinction between orthodoxy, which is right theology, and orthopraxy, which is right practice. And Paul's saying, right, you can't have one without the other. You just can't, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. Um,
0: and so, yeah, uh, so it feels to me like maybe to like sum up all these things, what Paul is is wanting to do is he's essentially wanting to re socialize the That's Corinthian right. church, like he's wanting to re socialize the Corinthian believers. And it's like, again, the Corinthians are in a very understandable way, a very understandable impulse they have is to live the way they've always lived, you know, and to live like everyone else in their context is living. And if you've heard this podcast before, if you've heard Stanford talk about this, like I think this fits well with this idea of plausibility structures, that like every community has a certain set of ideas or ways of life that feel, that feel plausible to them. And these are generally things, like, like you were saying, we don't have to think hard about valuing our freedoms, you know, because it just feels plausible to us that that's a very important thing. And so if you were to have an idea that feels different than that, which could be, hey, sometimes you're going to have to—it might be healthy and good and loving to lay down your freedom for the good of someone else. It's like that idea, although I don't think it sounds crazy, but it might be a little bit outside the plausibility structure. And so it would take some dissonance. It would take overcoming some dissonance to really start to embody that idea. And what Paul's doing is he's like— it's like if you can imagine a line of best fit, which is the plausibility structure, he's pointing out like you need to, you need to start living by some of these things that feel like outliers to you. You know, you need to start, you need to choose a new line of best fit, I guess, and for the for your way of life. And he talks about this in Romans. He calls this like you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, these things that he's talking about are not just like you need to, you know, even like give up meat for Lent or something like that. Where it's just this is just a choice just a simple choice you have to make. It's like, this is like pretty fundamental, these are fundamental things to how you live your life. Like you don't think that these things are problems or these things are problematic or whatever, but this is not just a simple decision you make. This is like a a deep fundamental choice to live in a new way and to like re-socialize what you think is true and how you see the world. And like, this is like a, a major project and one that's not just as simple as, I think you might hear that and think, okay, so what someone needs to do when they become a Christian is they need to look at their life and change everything about it, you know? Like, if I am working in the tech industry, I need to go work for a nonprofit. You know, if I am, you know, um, in a relationship with someone when I become a Christian, I need to get out of that relationship. You know, it's like, that. I just need to do the opposite of everything I'm doing now, like that Seinfeld episode where George just does the opposite and it all works out for him. But, you know, in in Corinthians, you know, he he poses the question, obviously it was posed to him, like, hey, I was married to this person, this sort of secular pagan person, and now I'm a Christian. Like, do I divorce them? You know, which you can sort of make sense. Like, there's not a terrible question. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Honor that marriage. Love your spouse. And so it's not like everything gets exploded, but it's just like you now, you were before serving one set of gods, you know, and now you're gonna be serving and living for this God. And that just sort of requires a different way of life and uh, requires a a faithful response and an obedient response. And so it's gonna take some discernment to figure out what that new life looks like, and it's gonna feel different. It's just going to feel different, and because it's gonna feel different, it's gonna be hard, and people are gonna think you're weird, and um, and that's gonna be hard. And but Paul's saying no, like this is <laughs> this is the
1: way you're a Christian now, and so this is what it sort of means to to live that out in your context. I don't know. It it's the tension of having to shift everything you think about your context without actually leaving yeah. your context.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is hard and not yes. hating it. You know, like not hating your context. I think, and like because I think that's the other thing. It's like, you know, just the way human beings tend to work. Or I should say I work, you know, it's like if I I've had experiences where like I've thought one thing for a while and then I get introduced to a new way and it's more it is more beautiful to me. I think it's truer. And then what I do is I start to hate mm-hmm. the old way. Like it's easier to psychologically leave it yeah. if I hate it, you know? And so you don't want Christians around who hate Corinth you know you want christians who who live in a different way but who love corinth you know um or you want christians in davis who who don't hate davis but who live in a different way than than everyone else but who love davis you know what i mean and that's a really interesting set yeah to to get out of the the taken for granted realities of what it means to live in a particular place and try to to live for god in that particular place so you're you're taking yourself out of that but not out of the city i don't know that's a really interesting
1: idea I really like that and so to kind of summarize everything that we've talked about it all comes back to mail everything comes back to mail it's all male it's all male and the reason that's so important is because when you stop looking at these letters as theological essays or or how to follow Jesus 101 and 102 you start to see what Paul is actually doing and what the authors of the New Testament are actually doing and what these letters are is they are templates or case studies in applying the gospel to a new context. So we have the gospel, the Mm -hmm. the four gospels, the story of who Jesus was and what he did and the significance of it. But then we immediately move out of that context into the Greco-Roman world. Mm -hmm. And we see Paul and Peter and James and others taking the gospel and applying it to a new world and having to kind of interpolate in a lot of ways, having to make some assumptions, and just do their best to be wise and be faithful with a couple of fixed points of what the gospel calls of us and working from there. Mm -hmm. And so when we read these letters today, there are many things in them that we should just take at face value, but I think the most significant thing that we should take away from them is here is the model for what it looks like to apply the gospel to a different context And here is how you follow it here. Here is the template for how to do it. But we actually have to kind of fill in the content at the end. We have, we have different questions that we have to ask. And so we have to look at how Paul is wrestling with the questions of his day, how he's using these fixed points Mm -hmm. of the gospel to inform his conclusions to those questions or his answers to those questions. And then we have to do the same thing with our questions, because our questions are going to be different. And yeah. even if our questions are the same, our context is so different that they might require totally opposite answers right. in order to be faithful to the gospel. Right. And so, which is hard work. It is, it is very hard work. That is the question of what it means to be a Christian today. How do we know where we have freedom to kind of interpolate and, and take a, a guess and where we don't? And it's not always clear. That's why we right. have different church denominations. That's why we have the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, is because we've disagreed on the answers to those questions many times. And I think that's okay. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's healthy to to some degree. But it's it's hard. That's the critical question. But that's the challenge of yeah, it's the challenge of pastors and of scholars and the people who yeah. think about this. That is our jobs in our own personal lives, but it's also the jobs of the, the people who really do this. Well, and they've devoted their lives to doing it because, yeah, it's really freaking hard to piece together one fourth of a conversation and then figure out how to apply it two thousand years from now, you know. But yeah. that's what we're doing here. Right. That's the task.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I just hope people are still asking
0: questions. Yeah. Like sometimes it's like, like the for the Corinthian church, they got some some things that they are addressing to Paul, and then Paul responds to it. You know, and. My hope, and I wonder if, like, in terms of what do we, how do we feel the challenge of Corinthians? You know, because Paul's like saying some hard things in Corinthians. You know, he's he's being directive to that church, and we wouldn't want to be like, oh, it's just for the Corinthians, so, like you you skate by, you know, without feeling any of the 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 weight. You know, but I wonder if, on some level, when we what th- one thing we can think about is like, do you do you tend to think about everything the way that they're just prevailing? culture around Mm -hmm. you thinks about that thing so is is the way that you think about sex pretty much the same as someone who doesn't follow jesus you know is the way that you think about food is the way that you think about your body is the way that you think about exercise the way that you think all like everything of life is just do you tend to just feel like you are pretty much right in line with just what sort of everyone else thinks if that's true it doesn't mean you're wrong but it probably means you ought to think about it you know and just like I said, like in the marriage example, that wasn't Paul, like Paul didn't say blow up the marriage. You know, Paul said, you should stay in that marriage. You know, it might be that the prevailing way that the world thinks about something might actually fit pretty well with the gospel or, you know, in in living obediently to Jesus, but it also might not. And if you look around and you just sort of think like or sound like what everyone else is thinking like and sounding like, um, there might be some room for you to think, am I am I sort of faithfully living into the Jesus story or am I just sort of doing what the Corinthians were doing? Sort of just a little serve that God there, do this thing over there and sort of bifurcating my worship. So, and I do think that's a challenge and I do, don't think we, we voluntarily do that very often. So I'm, I'm, I hope that maybe even listen to this conversation, it's like, oh yeah, what, do I feel distinct or is what I'm doing and the way I'm living, is that really serving Jesus or is that just kind of how everyone else is doing it? So
1: anyway, I've said enough. I think yeah, and and just to close us out, this is what the preaching class is doing. They are asking the question of yeah, okay, Paul did this for his culture and his context. What can we learn from Paul, and how do we apply this to ours? That they're yeah. going to be spending the next nine weeks yeah. or eight weeks uh, answering those questions, and totally, it's it's, it's super exciting.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you're gonna, you guys, if you get to listen in on Tuesday nights at eight, you're gonna love it. So we're very proud of them and excited about that. And that's Corinthians. That's a little overview for us. And uh, let's move into some quarantine corner, man. We got to talk to people about quarantine corner. I'm gonna go first, okay? What do you think about that? You can close us out. Do it. Um. So I finally did it, Christian. I, I, I so I got my pit boss, as you know, and I finally did that which those who have smokers do, which is buy a brisket and Smoke that sucker, okay? And so uh, I did it, man. For Easter, I kept thinking like it's such an expensive thing, it's gonna be so time consuming, so inconvenient. Like I got to pick a day, and like Easter's celebratory, and I had that two percent from Costco back, so I had like a hundred dollars to spend, and nice. so it was free to me. And I, I, so I, I woke up. I went to bed at ten thirty. I woke up at twelve thirty to to trim the brisket, to season the brisket, <laughs> to um to just prepare it to get on the smoker at two o'clock and AM? AM. Yeah. And then I, Are, I Oh And my then I gosh. got up at five AM to to check it and spritz it. And uh I was a little disappointed. It wasn't getting as dark as I wanted it to. Um but then and then i spritz it from like for the next couple hours and and then wrap that stuff. You sucker. have to
1: wake up every few hours to spritz it? I woke
0: up at so I woke up went to bed at ten thirty, woke up at twelve thirty, went back to bed at like two, then woke up at five and then was pretty much just up.
1: Oh my so, god! So
0: and then we and then it came <laughs> off the cooker at like two p.m. and and then had to rest for a while. And at first I was absolutely devastated because the first cut I made it was just like this is not as tender as it should be. It just it, it, it I dried the sucker out. And briskets hard like it's not an easy. I hope you know not easy. But I you'll be happy to know that my mood has 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 skyrocketed again because it actually was pretty tasty and i feel like even as we like have reheated it and eaten it some more it is it is pretty tasty so i feel pretty pretty proud of myself so anyway have a, i don't know what the quarantine corner is i just wanted to tell that story <laughs> but either it's come over to my house for the last bit of leftover brisket or It's buy a pit boss and cook brisket because it's fun or just get a new hobby and like just go try stuff, you know, because it was just be
1: just go full send
0: on a new thing. Yeah. And it was intimidating. And I was like, this is hard. And and I've and it's fun because like I always had such insecurity about not knowing how to cook meat. (laughs) Honestly, that sounds so dumb to say out loud. But I just had such insecurity like I'm not really a man like I don't know how to barbecue. And that's like stupid. That's that's bankrupt you know that's absolutely ridiculous but i but now you do yeah now i do and it just got interesting and and anyway i'll send you some pictures if you want to see yeah uh, very proud of it um anyway i'll put up put my brisket in the show notes yeah yeah i put the brisket in the show <laughs> notes yeah it'll be in the show notes so anyway um uh, i finally did it for anyone who was like gosh this guy stop talking about the pit boss if you're not gonna cook a brisket brother um now i can
1: yeah <laughs> so uh i was on a, a family vacation this weekend and one of our our uh my brother-in-law's now fiance wow. brought along this game. And it's kind of one of those party games that's like really conversation based and isn't so much a game as it is just one of those conversation starters. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the most incredible games I've ever played, but also intense. Yeah. So the gist of the game is you just pull cards with questions and then you ask each other and you get to pick who you ask a question to. And uh, you're talking about table topics. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. It's called uh, we're not really strangers. Mm-hmm. So, there's different levels of it, and they they're inter- they're, they go from, like, pretty low-key, safe questions to, like, pretty intense questions. So, you know, some of the early ones, like, based on what you know about me, what Netflix show would you recommend to me? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, you get, you know, some different ones. What title would you give this chapter in your life? Oh, wow. Uh Do you think I was popular in school? Explain. Do
0: you think My bro- I was popular in school? Meaning, like, do you imagine I was popular in school?
1: Yeah, or do you think I was a nerd and a loser? Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what do you What do you honestly think I about see. that? And so the instructions of the game are pretty simple. It's they say there's two strategies you can play. You can play it safe, <laughs> or you can play it to grow. Oh, that's and that's cool. the second one is how you really win. I want to know who came up with that line.
0: Like, yeah. I, I, I imagine, you know, what I imagine, I imagine they had this big meeting of like, how do we? What, what's the What's the feel we want for our, our rules or something like that? And they come up with all these like fun, interesting rules. And then someone's like, no, none of that. Scrap it all. Two rules.
1: Play it safe or play it to grow. And then they walk out the meeting. So so my brother-in-law gets one. I mean, this is, you know, we're with like my, o- Olivia's family and yeah. stuff. Like, this is a family gathering. And he gets one and it's. What lies are you currently telling yourself? Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? That is freaking devastating. (laughs) 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 If that's not the hardest question I've been – you know, someone's been asked all year. Right. And now having to, like, talk about it in a room full of people. So so here's my encouragement. If you are like, man, I really miss, you know, friendship and community and I feel like I need to reconnect and stuff – Man, if you are a Bible study leader or if you just want to reconnect with your friends, get this game. It's intense, but it's awesome, and you will learn a lot of really interesting things and, like, grow much, much closer. It's actually designed for two people, but you can play it with, like, six or seven. Really? People. That's awesome. It is. It's, it's sweet. That's, so,
0: that's great. I love that recommendation. I'm buying that. Hey, Christian, this is great. Thanks for doing this. Super fun. Thanks for, thanks for letting me go down Find some rabbit
1: trails yeah as always there wouldn't be a podcast without it
0: yeah see you man all right well that is it for us from corinth and now that you've read the rick steves intro it's time to see the sights it's time to take in all of what corinthians has to offer and so we'll be back next week with a couple of our student speakers who kicked off our little spring quarter teaching campaign and and they just did a great job. So I'm excited to hear from them about their talk and about their experience and about their passage. And like I said at the top, I thought this topic was gonna bore me and it was gonna bore you. And well, I was decidedly not bored by this. I found it thrilling to dive into this stuff and wrestle with it and think about what it means for us today and see myself in it. It's just amazing to me. Once you scratch at the surface of the scriptures, it's amazing how there's almost always something to excite you or offend you or puzzle you. It's just never boring. So. Before we go, I want to remind you again to ask us a question for the upcoming Ode to the Question Mark episode. And you can do that at collegelifedavis.com slash questions to ask away. And thank you as always to Kyle Jung and Josh Paskey for the music of your pod and your staff. You are the super apostles of podcast music. And to Mike Loretto, you are the super apostle of podcast editing. Thank you for doing all of our dirty work. But before we go, I want you to know, College Life, that we love you more than we loved seeing our very best friend, Stanford Gibson, preach the word of the Lord to the people of FBC. We're proud of you, Stanford. I'll see you all next week.